This is the Humans of Gaming Podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and beliefs. Welcome to Humans of Gaming. I'm Drew Dixon. I am the chief content nerd at Love Thy Nerd and co-host of this podcast. And I'm joined, as almost always, as sometimes always, <laughs> sometimes 60% always, Chris Goldney. <laughs> Here I am, in the flesh-ish, in your ear flesh holes. I think it's more than 60%. I just feels like lately it's been like 60%. Yeah, it's reason. just because my absence leaves such a gaping hole in your heart. That it's it true. feels like more. Sorry. It's very true. You, you've been doing all right? I feel you, like a dream. You were under the weather recently. You're feeling better? Yeah, it was just kind of like a little thing. I don't know. Like maybe I was just exhausted or something, but I felt like crap. But feeling good now. Good. Sweet. Well, we have a very special guest, as we almost always do on this podcast, and that's Shane Neville. Hey, Shane. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Uh, yeah, introduce yourself. How would people? How might people know you from your work in the games world and the games industry? Um, long story short, short-ish, um, I've been making games for, uh, 22 years. I started off at Electronic Arts and QA, worked on the Need for Speed team for five years, uh, working on Need for Speed Hot Pursuit, Need for Speed High Stakes, Need for Speed Porsche Unleashed. Uh, those are great games. I, I love those. Especially Porsche Unleashed. I really, I'm really proud of that game. Um, and then I, we also did the driving missions on 007 Agent of Your Fire, if, if you remember that little doozy on the PlayStation. I think it's PlayStation 2. And uh, yeah, then, Wait, which, which one was it? 007 Agent Under Fire. Um, so and- I remember, I don't know if I played that. Was that kind of in the same vein as like... They were making those when the when Pierce Brosnan was 007, like yeah, it was towards the end of Mario that. Never Dies or something. They were like third person, right? Yeah. So what had happened is uh, EA had the license, and I was at EA at the time, and they wanted to make more driving missions. So they took the Need for Speed team that was based in Vancouver, and we became the 007 driving team. And then down in California oh, wow. was where the people were working on the shooter part of it, and. I had very little interactions with them at all. I was mainly working on like the toolkit and scripting and things like that. Um, I didn't I didn't stay on the project till the end, but I built a lot of the frameworks that they we used uh, for level design and things like that. Oh, that's um, cool. And then after that, I spent uh, five years on the illustrious Engage. Nothing but a success story there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was the uh, the phone like the gaming phone thing. Yeah, oh, with like the side talking and. Uh, you know, and, and that was actually a really good experience. Like um, the funny thing a lot of people don't realize is Nokia sold enough hardware, um, especially overseas in India and China, that the Engage was ultimately profitable at the end of the day. Um, in the wow. West, it was Weird. largely a failure. It didn't really catch on. But uh, piracy was so rampant in these countries. And there was a ton of really good games on the Engage. I was a game producer there. Um, so you could get this phone and then pirate a ton of really good games for free. And that's what a lot of people did. And and Nokia, you know, they never sold a phone at a loss. You know, they would always sell Mm -hmm. phones for a profit and they just moved a ton of hardware, which paid for everything. Uh, And then I was on uh, Company of Heroes. I was the producer of Opposing Fronts, the first expansion for Company of Heroes. And then I moved out to the East Coast of Canada to run a small studio called Longtail Studios, which was kind of a sister company to Ubisoft in that our CEO was Gerard Guimau, who's the brother to Yves Guimau, who's the CEO of Ubisoft. Yeah. yeah. And we did story-driven games there. And then for the last... Uh, Is there something there that, that stands out that you worked on? Nothing anybody would have heard of. Uh, we made... Um, dance on broadway game that i was peripherally involved in we made a a pretty weak tower defense mobile game called gun dead defense i don't recommend it to anyone Uh, (laughs) well that's honest we made a a really fun uh, ds game called uh, best friends tonight where you played a bunch of kids running a television show but it kind of really disappeared under the radar because of marketing decisions with ubisoft and just kind of the the bottom falling out of the Nintendo DS market. So it was a good game, but nobody's ever heard of it. Um, and then I went indie eight years ago, um, first made a little flash game called Ray Arden Science Ninja to kind of teach myself how to program. Then I worked on a mobile game called Shell Razor, which was a pretty big hit. It's about a giant turtle with guns on his back, blowing stuff up. 
very yeah. cartoony, very over the top. It did really well. Um, and then most recently, Bunker Punks, which is a roguelike first-person shooter uh, that you can play on Steam. And uh, yeah, that went really well. Yeah, and that's been received really well, right? Yeah, critically, it went really well. Um, Sales-wise, you know, there's definitely a lot of failure stories on Steam right now. Um, Bunker Punks is not one of them, but it's also not, you know, a massive success. I'm, I'm mm. You know, I'm I'm moderately happy with how well it did commercially, but I'm pretty happy with how well it did critically. A lot of people really liked it, and it got a lot of great coverage. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen anybody talk uh, say anything but really good things about it online. So that's at least got to be like some 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 confirmation for the work you're doing. Yeah, no, it's it's been good. It's it was a fun project. Way too long. I spent four years on it, but uh, I learned a ton and really happy with the final product. And was it yeah. just you working on that one? You have a team of people. Uh, I did everything except for the audio, uh, sound design, and music. And so I worked with a shell in the pit, a guy named Gordon Gladdery, uh, who just recently did all the music in Wonder Song, which launched yesterday, which oh, is yeah. the, the most delightful game of all time. Oh, uh, yeah. And so Gord did this amazing soundtrack for Bunker Punks, and Power Up Audio did the sound design. And you'll probably know them from games like Towerfall and Celeste, uh, Crypt of the Necrodancer. They did the sound design on that as well. Uh, and they're just they're a local studio here in Vancouver, and they're they're just banging out great audio design on a ton of indie games, and they're fantastic. Nice. So, do you have a? Are you you launched a project since uh, Bunker Punks came out, or are you are you a? Uh... I mean, a uh, project in the works anyway, or do you, do you have anything to announce? I'm curious. Uh, nothing to announce. Um, I, I definitely took the summer to kind of figure out what the next plan was. And, and yeah. I was looking at a bunch of different options, including possibly going back and getting a job in the industry. I do a fair bit of, of freelancing and consulting, and that's uh, I'm working on an unannounced project pretty steadily right now, which is going really well. But uh, just I guess what today's Friday. So two weeks ago today, I did the the great unity process of going file new project and starting my new project too early. <laughs> yeah. But I'm really excited about it. Um, it's something different. Uh, I was having a conversation with a, a good friend of mine about just my indecisiveness about you know do I want to keep working at the scale I'm working at? Do I want to get a job? Do I want to start a studio? You know what's next for me? I really didn't know. And he said, well. Five years from now, which one would you regret not doing? And as soon as he said that, it was like, oh, I have to do this next project. This is the Don't one. Don't you that hate it when people ask those poignant questions? Well, like, hate it, flash, <laughs> love it. Because you're just like, yeah, oh. It was exactly what I needed to hear. And uh, it was Alex Vostrov who made a game called Infested Planet. And okay. uh, he's been an indie friend of mine in Vancouver almost since I went indie. And he just randomly emailed me and was like, hey, you make indie games. I make indie games. Let's go for a walk. And we've been. <laughs> Like really good friends ever since he's a uh, you know one of my most trusted friends in the indie scene in vancouver and he just he knew how to hit the button hit it right on the button with me and ask that one perfect question yeah that's cool we need those friends but i agree sometimes they can be pretty annoying uh, <laughs> <laughs> mess with our sense of security and that kind of thing mostly i just think like why can't i be that wise like why does it always have to be someone else yeah, exactly. I, I, I played that role with him a couple times too. So, you know, we, I think we're even now. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's cool. So um, I think Chris has a question from one of our community members before we kind of get going here. Yeah. So every every week when we record, um, we try to get one of our monthly supporters uh, into the podcast with us just as a way to say thanks for helping us do what we do. Um, unfortunately we weren't able to get somebody in, but we did have a question from our very own Stephanie Skiles and the thing that she finds interesting, she's, you know, kind of looking through your work, um, and you know, it looks like most of what you're working on as far as she could tell seems to be eight bit and she's kind of, or, you know, that sort of pixel art sort of stuff. And she's wondering like if that's a design choice or for budget reasons or both, I guess she's kind of just curious like what that design choice is all about yeah i think it's a really good question and uh i think it's 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 a ton of different things and stephanie definitely got it right it's like budget um and and design are both really important one thing that i think that pixel art does really well in video games aesthetically um besides being you know cool and retro and also um you know 
pretty fast to implement. But with tools like Flash and things like that, you can do HD animations and HD art almost as fast as pixel art. But the thing that I like about pixel art from an aesthetic point of view is the simplification and design that you get out of going with a, a minimalist pixel art style is it makes more of the world open to the imagination. And I think you can get away with this also in high definition art. Wondersong is a great example of it's, it's full high definition art, but it's very simplified. And as a result, you can kind of put yourself into that world a little bit more and fill in the blanks. Uh, I think Night in the Woods did a great job of this as well with mm. a great minimalist art style. Yeah. So when I see pixel art that I really like, it's it's always minimalist. So, you know, the stuff that uh, Capybara did with Super Time Force, things yeah. like that, I just love that stuff. But when I see really high definition pixel art that's not simplified, I kind of wonder why they're doing it. Because to me, <laughs> it, it loses a lot of its value. But, you know, teach their own, right? Some people yeah. really like the, the noodly uh, pixel art, but I like the crunchy, simplified stuff. Uh, my next game is probably going to be a slightly higher definition pixel art, but it's going to be more design focused. So mm -hmm. a lot more of a simplified design, but a higher resolution of art. And so you can get away with more facial expressions and expressive animations, but you're not getting into like tiny little details being represented by pixels. Instead, it's still going to be big blocks of color and and a good use of shape to get across uh, an aesthetic design. So that's that's an interesting thing that you're talking about, like filling in those gaps with your imagination. Because I remember um, we were talking to another developer, and he's working on uh, the the Spyro remaster. You know, it's coming out, and he said, you know, it's been weird because he remembers playing Spyro like PS One days, and you know, looking at at these designs and stuff, and he's kind of having to like, you know up the ante on him he's like it's amazing how many gaps my brain filled in you know when i was younger playing these like terrible looking polygons on playstation you know or like going back to the the one for me is final fantasy 7 like you go back and try to play that thing now and i just want to die inside <laughs> but <laughs> I, you didn't think that when you were playing it you know like because you were just amazed at you know what was even possible then so i think that's a really interesting take on it yeah like i'm I, I studied art in university and I've actually recently started painting again over the summer. And uh, it's a very common tactic in, in painting is implied detail. Mm. And so you're not rendering something out, but through your brush strokes and use of shape and color and your edges, you can imply a lot of detail that's not there. So if somebody looks at it really closely, they'll be like, and there's nothing here, but through you know, good decisions in terms of value and shape and edge, you can imply that some that there's detail. So the, the focal point might have a ton of detail and rendering in it, but the rest of the painting might be really loose, but you your brain puts detail that's not there just through uh, simplification, which is a great technique and it's something that I want to explore more in games. Yeah, that's rad. Brains are amazing. <laughs> yes, and brains are amazing. <laughs> Color theory and design is just like, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, you guys ever watch that show brain games? My daughter watches it. Crazy. Oh man, that's such a cool show. But there was, well, I think he, he, they talk about this in several episodes, but there's some episodes where they'll kind of talk about that, how our brain will create shortcuts, um, to try to just be more efficient and, yeah. you know, to fill in the gaps and stuff. So it's interesting to hear how that kind of can work out in art as well. Yeah, definitely. That's cool. Well, is there, uh, of, of all the work you've done in games, I'm curious if there's like a, what, what are you most proud of? I think if I had to pick three, because there's been a lot of different stages in my life, you know, Need for Speed Porsche Unleashed was probably the first time I worked on a, a tr what I would call a truly great game. And that this is a game that I think I've had, well, I, I had multiple people come up to me and, you know, get me to sign their box or have told me it's their favorite game of all time. Oh, wow. And, uh, it's a game that, you know, I, I worked harder on that game than any other game in my life. I worked, you know, three and a half months of seven day weeks, uh, 80 plus mm. hour, hour weeks. Um, you know, Sheesh. I did for the last month and a half, it was the hardest crunch ever. I didn't see, you know, my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, I didn't see her in the daylight, uh, for the last month mm. and a half. And she um, stuck with you. Yeah. She did. <laughs> is incredibly patient and i think you have to be to, to <laughs> date somebody who worked at ea back then yeah. and uh yeah. but 
at the end of the day, it, it was this timeless game. And I'd never, I'd worked on a lot of good games before that, but I never really understood what the potential was. Um, and then the other two, you know, Company of Heroes, Opposing Fronts, that was the best job I've ever had. Every single day going into work at Relic was a ray of sunshine. And like hmm. the other leads on the project were like, can you just stop being so happy? You know, you're really, <laughs> really dragging us down here. And yeah. like, I was a big Relic fan. So I was like fanboying out every day. Yeah. <laughs> but I was just that's another co- series that uh, Company of Heroes. That's I mean, the people who are into that series freaking love it. Yeah, and and you know the fans are there, but also the studio, um, especially at the time, it was everyone that was there was there because they were really good at their job. Yeah, and, uh, it wasn't about competence; it was about excellence, and everyone was pushing everyone else. The artists were always pushing each other. The mm. producers were always pushing each other. You know, I worked with. Uh, Mark Noseworthy, who's now the executive producer on Destiny, and he was working on Dawn of War 2 while I was on Company of Heroes, and we had known each other before. We had a good rivalry going, but we were also (laughs) each other. It was just everybody was at the top of their game every day, which was was really great. Um, And then the other one was Shellraiser, and Shellraiser was was just me and and, uh, three other people. Uh, The programmer, Nick Wanders, I have no problem saying he's probably one of the best game programmers in the country, if not North America, just a wizard. The game only crashed once in six months of development. That's like, he's just super tight and really good. The artist, Jesse Turner, is a tornado of talent and speed. He keeps (laughs) so much stuff done so fast every day. And and our audio director, uh, Jen Lewis, she had been working audio for longer than I'd been in games. And so we just had this super veteran team where everybody was that dream team, dream team. And we worked like a jazz band. You know, we improvised, we trusted each other. Everyone knew what each other's role Mm. was. Um, you know, a, a good example from that game is one night I was playing the game and I was like, we need another anti-air unit. So I just sent an email to the team. The artist on the Sky Train into work that morning drew a picture of something on his phone and sent it off to me. And I said, that looks great. Um, by noon, he had sent me the art and animations. And then I put it in and balanced everything and hooked up all the systems. And, and by the end of the day, we had an entirely new, complete functioning unit in the game based off one email the night before. And this happened regularly. I've never, ever worked on a team that worked that fast and that free before. Um, And we tried to make lightning strike twice for a year after that project wrapped up. And we just couldn't, couldn't find that magic again, but Mm. the most. So not only was it like this dream team, it was like a dream moment where you never (laughs) found that like stride again. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was just this this perfect project. And uh, you know, like we're, we're all friends for life and, but we just couldn't find that magic again. And uh, yeah. it was great. Like nothing but good memories uh, looking back on that. I would think about that sometimes with some of the things I'm doing. I'm like, am I at, am I at my peak now? <laughs> Do I ever get that again? Is this as good as it gets? So that's, yeah. uh, do you, I don't know if you guys watch The Office, but there's this great quote that Andy Bernard says. Like, I think it's the very last season, one of the last episodes. And he's like, I wish you could know that you're in the good old days when you're in them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's what makes well, sense. I definitely appreciated Shellraiser and Relic when I was there. And, uh, you know, definitely had a lot of appreciation yeah. while I was in the moment. But, you know, at that point, I'd already been making games for 10 years. So I knew that mm. there, there, I was into something special, which is great. Were, uh, was your time, it sounds like you, you spoke really highly of Relic. Was your time there less uh, crunch, crunchy than... Uh... <laughs> Than EA? I'm just yeah, by, by far. You know, like I was at EA during the dark years, even before the EA wife uh, email went out and all of those things. So it was it was expected to do crazy crunch at EA. And, and that was a big part of the culture in Vancouver in general. Um, mm-hmm. Relic had a new studio manager and, and one of his mandates was focusing on work-life balance. So, you know, yeah. the idea of what... That's kind of rare back then, I would think. Like... Yeah, the we was here of, of of the culture of EA back then was actually pretty pretty calm. I mean, EA gets a lot of crap, but I feel like a lot of other studios kind of followed suit. Yeah, it was very much the norm and and Relic, especially in Vancouver scene was one of the first studios to really say, you know, let this enough is enough. We value work-life balance and mm-hmm. you know, our crunch was for the most part besides the leads and a couple of senior people, it was you know, we work late on Tuesdays and Thursdays to close bugs. Uh, the weekend before we shipped, 
out of a team of 110, there were eight of us in on the weekend. And that wasn't wow. we were working. We were actually just on hand in case any bugs came up mm -hmm. that we could fix the bugs and turn the new build around really quick uh, versus EA where, you know, you were doing 24 hour shifts on the last day, just trying to get the last little bit into the game. Um, and, you know, like I was the project manager, um, but so like a lot of that was my work was trying to make sure that we weren't doing overtime. But when you have a culture of a, in a studio and you have your highest level of management saying we don't do <laughs> overtime, it makes it a lot easier to just say, well, this is a feature that requires overtime. So we're not doing this. And uh, yeah. that opened up a lot of opportunities for me as a project manager to build a better environment. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So uh, can you give us an example of some things, ways you were able to like push against, against that? Um, like the original company of heroes, um, which had a, a, a different leads team in a lot of ways, they did do a lot of crunch and a lot of, when I first came in, my first, month on the project they would say well this isn't how we do things at relic at relic we do it this way and i was like well now that i'm running the project we don't have to do things that this way there are other ways we can do it and just kind of making that understanding that there isn't only mm -hmm. one way to make games what, right. what i found and i find in general is most people they come into the game industry and every studio will tell you this is how games are made and what they really mean is this is how we make games. And <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when I went to EA, I just thought this is how games are made. And then I worked at Nokia and Nokia with the Engage, you know, here's this huge multinational company. Um, they really did value their employees. They're a Scandinavian country. So they've got, you know, Finnish values in terms of overtime and respecting personal life and things like that. And so, you know, I'm making games and suddenly people are going home at 530. And I'm like, what? And everyone's not playing the <laughs> office was a ghost town and i had to change how i worked because i knew i couldn't count on other people to stay late and push and so as a result i had to get much more organized to line these things up so i had spent five years working in a situation you know finland goes on vacation for the whole month of august so if you don't have if you need work that needs to get done in august you better get that done in july mm -hmm. because nobody's going to reply to any emails like the whole country mm -hmm. shuts down and everyone goes to the south of france it feels like um it's really <laughs> crazy and people told me this was happening and i didn't believe them but <laughs> trust me the next four years i had things lined up way ahead of time if i needed sign off from somebody from finland because i knew that this was mm -hmm. going to happen so once you figure out that you can get an award-winning game done without crazy crunch, then you just know it's doable. So then you just figure out how to do it with your team. And, you know, you, you don't always succeed. Sometimes you do have to, to push a little bit, but, you know, taking a game, taking a studio that had never ever finished a game without crazy crunch before, and then doing it for the first time, I think really showed the team um, and management that it was possible, but we just made it a priority. Mm, yeah. I feel like if I was, running things in Finland, I would recommend taking February off. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, you, I don't understand the cho choice of oh, August. Oh yeah. You figure but, August, the weather is probably like just starting to get better there. Right. Yeah. Well, a lot of people go North to their cabins because everyone has a cabin with a sauna and a <laughs> lot of people go to France. Yeah. So, <laughs> but it's a very common thing in Europe in general is just August is vacation month across yeah. the whole so continent. Were so, you living there while you worked or you were working here remotely? I was working in Vancouver, but oh, yeah. because it's a company, all the management was in Finland and a lot of decisions had to be made in Finland. Right. And we had to yeah. channel things through uh, the process. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, it's, I'm glad like, I mean, we just had this whole thing of, uh, I guess all this, information now is coming out about and i haven't really read that much about it so i don't want to say too much but about uh telltale and some of you know the layoffs and things and just i think a lot of these stories are bringing that subject to uh and of course with ea uh bringing the subject of um crunch to the fore which i think is good and i think a lot of companies are looking themselves in the mirror a little bit more about what that what the culture should look like because i think a, a lot of times it's like the attitude of some of these companies in the past has been like, well, you know, it's a like super big privilege to work in the games industry. I mean, you get to make these things that you love. And so this is just how it works. Like, yeah, you know, and sort of take advantage of people based on getting to work in this industry. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's not healthy. Yeah. I and, mean, and honestly, in, 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 if you're in management and you don't know any other way to do it, 
then that's what you're going to do. You're going to pull the overtime trigger and you're going to work people to the bone. Mm -hmm. Um, And until someone shows you otherwise, you believe this is the only way to do things. And so at a company like Telltale, I guarantee that half the managers didn't want anyone to work overtime, but they just thought it was the only option available to Mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know. And they were taught that too, to some degree, you know, I mean, we, We learn these things from, it's not like they happen in a vacuum and you're just like, I'm going to be a jerk manager. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like, no, somebody else kind of pushed you to the bone and you thought, well, that's just how it is. Yeah, exactly. So if you just think that's the way it is and there's no pressure from management to try and fix that, that problem, then you don't do it. And uh, which sucks, you know, um, because if you don't believe it's doable in another way, you don't do it. But as soon as you know it's possible, then you figure out the solutions to make it work. Definitely. It's so crazy to me that like, when you start to institute like a real work-life balance, it makes you so much more efficient because <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, okay, well, Saturday and Sunday, like I'm not working. So that means Monday through Friday really have to count. Or, you know, even if you go to the, to the point of like, okay, five o'clock, like I'm done, you know, I'm clocking out or whatever. Like you just become so much more efficient in the time that you do have that it just, I mean, at least in my experience just works out, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think people buy into more like I think if people feel respected, like uh, with that balance is held in, it, it holds it respects people when you hold that balance and respect for the people who work under you um, such that they'll believe in what they're doing more. Um, you know, obviously, there are, are a lot of great games that have been made under crunch. So um, there's that, too. But <laughs> yeah, absolutely. but uh, but I do think um I do think it's possible to go the other route and and have a better game just because the people who made it are like, yeah, feel valued and, and that makes them buy into the, the process more. Hey, so a little earlier, uh, Shane walked in on me and Drew talking Fortnite. That's right. And uh, we started to talk and then we're like, hey, we should save it for the podcast. So here we are. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, Drew and I were talking about that article. Where did it first? It, it ended up on Kotaku, on, but it was first on business something, right? Well, I don't know if it was which one was first, but I no. saw it, the first place I saw it come up was the, on Kotaku Australia. But uh, I should have pulled it up. But this guy was basically making the argument that uh, Fortnite is not good for children, one. And then two, it's not really good for the industry. <laughs> um, and so I'll just try to summarize it real quick because um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts as someone who's been involved in the industry for a long time, Shane. Um, but uh, basically, so we know Fortnite uses a lot of sort of, um, for lack of a better word, kind of FOMO design principles. Like it gets, it keeps you coming back to it. Because if you don't, if you don't keep playing, like you're going to miss when this certain skin or emote was there. And, you know, you need to keep playing because unless you spend real cash, you need to keep playing so that you can keep making money to buy those dances and whatever emotes. (laughs) Yeah. And so obviously Fortnite is not, it's by far not the first company or first game that does those things. But we were discussing how I think it might be one of the first games that does those things one of the first big games that does those things in a way that's appealing to kids, um, which I think is kind of what bothered this guy who wrote this article is that his kids are playing it or well, his kids, he doesn't let his kids play it, but, but, uh, but so many other people's kids are right. And it's this huge source of tension and frustration for parents. Um, and a lot of them just give in and let their kid play it, um, which is, which is not good. And obviously that's, I think the most important thing I'd want to say to our listeners, like if you're a parent, you know, set boundaries and that, those kinds of things. But his point is that um, it's, it's not uh, those sorts of principles ought to be, I think he would say they ought to be uh, regulated in the industry. Similarly to how we regulate the content uh, like, like sexual or violent content in games for kids. Um, So he's not the first person to make that argument. Lots of people have made that kind of argument. Um, Now that I have kids, I'm like way more sympathetic to that, line of thinking than I used to be. Um, and so, yeah, like should, um, some of these kind of addictive, um, you know, design, uh, addictive sort of design mechanics, um, should they be regulated in games? I think is kind of the question the article brings up. And also he says it's, it's hurting the industry (laughs) because, um, Fortnite's massive success obviously is 
like not going to go unnoticed. So we're going to get more and more of this kind of thing in games and more and more of it aimed at kids too, unless there's some sort of like regulation. Anyway, I just threw a lot at you, but I'm curious <laughs> of your thoughts, Shane. <laughs> yeah, so like, it's interesting because I, I think that the the compulsion loop stuff is is challenging in that it's a very difficult thing to identify and filter and maintain, you know? So you you could argue that Fallout has compulsion loop design mechanics in it, um, you know, in, yeah. in different ways, right? Um, Just leveling up is a compulsion loop. Exactly. Uh, the fact that there's so much stuff you can find in Fallout 4, like the loot, that's, that's, a, that's a compulsion mechanic to some degree. Exactly. And so it, it reaches dangerous territory when it comes down to defining and restricting it. I, I do agree with all the laws on loot box coming out of Europe. I think that those are fantastic. Mm. Uh, and, you know, what's, what's always going to happen in technology or entertainment uh, or any, any industry period where somebody wants to make money is people are going to identify an opportunity and they're going to capitalize on it until government bodies state, say otherwise. And so yeah. I do agree that there's a lot of issues with Fortnite in terms of, you know, um, I, I've got my own concerns about violence and young players and, uh, I think yeah. those are where a lot of my concerns with Fortnite come up because you I said you have a daughter, right? I do have a daughter. Um, and you know, when she started playing games on her iPad, I, I explained to her how compulsion loops work and, mm-hmm. you know, she's like, Oh, look at, they're making me watch an ad so I can get some free uh, <laughs> product. And I was like, oh, is it worth watching this ad to get some, some gems for you? And she's like, yes, it is. And she consciously <laughs> made that decision. How old was, um, she? How old was she at this point? Uh, probably seven, oh, okay. six. Yeah. Um, that was when we first started letting her, uh, and you know, at that time I was vetting all the games, but now she kind of, you know, before installing a game, she'll she still needs the password and stuff like that. But I don't personally go and vet every game. She's eleven now, and uh, she's got a pretty good head on her shoulders. And so, um, but so it's like there's the violent content of it, but in the compulsion loop side, any free game that's out there is going to be doing this. And so, if you're a parent who, and a lot of parents do this, they just give their kid an iPad, and they don't yep. let their kid spend money on a game. Like maybe they'll be like, oh, six dollars for Minecraft. I suppose, you know, as opposed to, you know, when I was a kid and it was like $60 for a cartridge for the NES or SNES, you know, right. it's a whole different investment, but the parents now, and I see it all the time when I'm, you know, at a, a family event or traveling, I see these kids playing free to play mobile games on their iPads, on the phone, on transit, wherever. Um, and I don't think a lot of parents really understand the kind of systems that are in place, but I don't think that Fortnite is the the canary in the coal mine on this one. I think that iPad and the success of mobile gaming is the canary in yeah. the coal mine. Um, yeah, I think I think the reason it's coming up now with Fortnite is just because it's it's the current kind of like uh, biggest game big, in the world, <laughs> right? Current biggest game in the world, and it's it's just a perfect storm of things. Like it's it's the biggest battle royale game, and it's available on all those platforms too. Like you can play it on any platform. Yeah. Um, and 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 also that whole thing of like this is the first time I think a battle royale game has been made that's like somewhat um appealing to younger younger players. Well yeah, it's like cartoony kids. and there's no like gore and I even you know, that helps parents look at it and be like, Oh, this is fine for kids because it looks like Pixar. Yeah. And I think like a lot of those design intents, those were a lot of those were taken from Team Fortress Two. Um, yeah. A lot of that work that Valve did, and then you know Blizzard carried it forward with Overwatch. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you want to make a branded shooter and you're a, a big AAA studio, you need characters and iconic character design. I think that's part and yeah. parcel for making a successful uh, AAA game these days. And I think that you know a lot of the smaller first-person shooters just get away with generic character designs, and that's that affects their appeal across a broad audience. And so mm-hmm. I think that the character design is really good, but I don't think that the character design necessarily appeals to kids. I think it just appeals to a broader audience and, and also makes Right. Sense. Yeah. And I don't think any of this was necessarily like, I don't think anyone working on Fortnite was necessarily like, let's make this appeal to kids so that we can <laughs> prey on them and get their money. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. I, I honestly think that, you know, we, Epic's been around for decades, right? And yeah. Yeah. I, I think, that Epic definitely did not expect this to be a, as big a hit with kids as it is, um, mm-hmm. for sure. But I think 
a lot of that also falls down to the situation where we're at with the streaming community and a YouTube community. Um, in the same way that I see a lot of parents yep. let their kids play free to play games without understanding the compulsion loops. A lot of kids let their kids watch YouTube celebrities without understanding. Mm-hmm. Content. And I think that's a, a much bigger concern mm-hmm. um, because there are, you know, like Logan Paul and a lot of these people, their audience is eight year old kids yeah. and yeah. Uh, stuff that they do is stuff that no eight year old kid should be exposed to. And uh, yep. definitely needs to be some broadcast standards, not only in free to play games, but also if, you know, YouTube needs to really figure out how it's censoring its content um, for kids because there's huge issues on that front too. But that's where these kids are learning it from. They're learning it mm-hmm. on Twitch and they see their heroes playing these games and uh, that just continues to market it to this young audience. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I, I guess it maybe it speaks to the importance of some of the stuff we're trying to do with All Thy Nerd because one of our hopes is to like educate people about what's going on in gaming and nerd culture. Um, yeah, so they can be more more informed. But I think a lot of parents just get really frustrated because it's moving at a faster rate than they feel like they can possibly keep up with. So they either create some really like flimsy rules for their households, <laughs> or or they just get tired of fighting the battle and just like whatever, just play it. Like <laughs> I don't even. Yeah. Like, I don't. I feel for parents. You know, I, I'm mm-hmm. not a parent yet. But I'm a gamer, like hardcore nerd dude, and it scares the crap out of me thinking about how I'm how I would handle this with kids. And I understand the industry, like let alone you have so many parents that like they aren't into this stuff. They're not gamers. They're not nerds. They don't, you know, read Kotaku or whatever. Like, uh, dude, that's debilitating, you know, how to how to deal with that and. You know, I think I think back to my own kind of upbringing and obviously that the industry was much different, you know, 20 years ago or however long. But like my parents kind of took the approach of just super strict, like, you know, I get to play an hour a day or something if that. And, you know, I think those are the two responses we see either go super strict and limit it to basically nothing or they go the opposite end of the spectrum, which is just uh, do whatever. You know, and I think both are detrimental in different ways, but man, it's it's hard. I talked to a lot of parents about this because they know I'm in the industry. And uh, I was uh, at a birthday party. It was almost a year ago now. One of the parents looked over at me. He's like, I think it's really disappointing that my son can identify an AK-47. And I was like, yeah, I think it's really disappointing in your parenting that your son can (laughs) identify an AK-47. And he got really (laughs) choked up. And and he was like, well, it's not something I can control. I was like, it absolutely is. You know, you set the tone for your household. And yeah, it's a slog. And yeah, after a really hard day, you don't want to have an argument with your kids. And sometimes it's easier to just go check out. But in the same way, you know, when I was a kid in the 80s, all cartoons were for kids. And you could go to your video rental store and get you know, some really nasty anime from Japan that in no way an eight-year-old kid could watch, but it was shelved Mm -hmm. with the kids' cartoons because that's where cartoons went, Mm -hmm. right? And so now we've got a bunch of parents who grew up on Nintendo and Sega, um, and they're like, oh, video games are just for kids. And it's like, man, video games haven't been for kids for 15 years, you know? Like Grand Theft Auto, definitely not for kids. And Mm -hmm. a lot of parents still don't understand that differentiation because they're not involved in the scene at all. So they just assume like, oh, well, my kid can play a game on the Nintendo. Fortnite's on the Nintendo Switch. It should be fine because Nintendo is a family platform that has Mario and Animal Crossing and Zelda, right. you know? Um, and they really don't get it. I had this conversation with my optometrist last week when I was getting my eyes checked and her <laughs> kids are playing Fortnite. And she's like, what do you think about that? And I was like, what do you think about your kids shooting guns all day? You know, like if you're okay yeah. with it, I can't say otherwise you're the parent, yeah. but if you're not, and you've got a Nintendo switch, there's a ton of great games out there that don't involve shooting guns. Yeah. Um, and if, I think that the parents just need to be more involved, but I get it. Like being a parent, you know, if you've got a family and both, parents are employed full-time and then you've got to come home and raise kids it's exhausting you know it's it's a really demanding job like i'm so lucky that i've got one kid i can't imagine having four kids and trying to stay on Mm. top of it you know you the struggle you just stop fighting right you're like yeah you (laughs) that that temptation's there constantly for sure i have three so i i feel that temptation yeah um yeah, there i'll read a little the article by the way is called uh what defenders of fortnite and 
and games refuse to accept. Uh, and it's on Kotaku Australia and also on Business Insider. But um, so the, I'll just read this part because I thought it was interesting. He said, so this isn't an op-ed from someone saying Fortnite should be banned or Fortnite isn't a great game. It shouldn't. And it is. He says it's just not suitable for kids. And maybe deliberately addictive gameplay has now evolved to the point where it should be considered a classification issue along with violence and sexual content. So that's sort of what we were talking about earlier. Um, But he said, for me, it's simple. We just say you can't play them until you're old enough to play them. And then later on in the article, he says, um, there are literally hundreds of thousands of video games for your kids to play that don't cause problems in households. Fortnite isn't one of them. And honestly, if you can't see that and feel compelled to defend it, uh, you're deliberately not looking. So I just thought that was interesting. Boom roasted. Um, just, <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I don't really bring that up to be like, stick it to Fortnite or anything, but it illustrates that point you were saying earlier about, uh, of just encouraging parents to be, to be deliberate. And, and, you know, if you'll like, one of the things I know with my kids is if I will play a game with them, they will play anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, just an encouragement to, to parents, like if Fortnite's frustrating you, there's so many other great games that you can give your kids some freedom to play that are not going to, you know, not going to be as um, maybe not as, as frustrating. Uh, And also um, if you play with them, man, they just, they just, my kids anyway, they'll do any, if I just give them devoted attention, they, they eat that up. So, and and there's a ton of great games you can play, you know? So I agree completely with everything you've said. Yeah. Cool. Well, we need to, we're, we've been talking for a while here. We haven't really asked you about you and your background and your life. Uh, where, where are you from originally? I'm, I'm from a small town in Saskatchewan, which is, uh, Saskatchewan is the province in the middle of Canada that's shaped like a big door. It's a big rectangle. <laughs> um, and my town is, if there was a doorknob on the left, that's kind of where Battleford is. Uh, it's a small town, 3,500 people. That's where I grew up. Um, and I could not wait to get out of town as I graduated <laughs> high school. <laughs> yeah so uh what was what was uh was was religion a part of that upbringing did you go to church or anything yeah um i was i was raised lutheran um and confirmed in the lutheran faith and uh you know my my mom and grandmother basically raised me and i wouldn't say they were extremely religious but they were you know we would usually go once we would usually go on sunday and go to church mm-hmm. um and especially when either my sister or i were in confirmation because we would also have classes either before or after um and i'd also have confirmation classes once or twice a week after school um as a kid so, did you did you like going or was it i know like oh gosh got to go to church again it really depended on the pastor <laughs> um, yeah and we had you know there was a point where we had um like the Luther, there was a Lutheran church in North Battleford, which was the city across the river from Battleford. It was in the north direction, as you could guess. Um, and so we would go t- to church in North Battleford, but there was a brief time where we had a church in Battleford that we would go to. And we had some great pastors. And a lot of times they were student pastors and they would come in for a month to, you know, to work at the church. And yeah. uh, there were some that were just amazing. But then, you'd, you know, another one would come in for a month and just be like, oh. Just let this be over, you know. And so, <laughs> really, mostly because they were like boring or something. Yeah, they just they didn't talk to me um, in a way that I that I understood, and like they they didn't. A good pastor can tell a great story, and yeah. uh, the pastor who you know I went through with confirmation, he was amazing. Uh, I wish I could remember his name right now, but it's totally slipped my mind. Um, but you know, he he was a mentor. He was a, a great storyteller. He could keep the whole congregation enthralled with his his sermons and uh it was amazing um but then you have others that you're just like Ugh, why am i here um i always i always <laughs> love the the christmas services with candlelight singing and I, you know as a kid i was always you know then we drive around town to look at all the houses with the christmas lights up i always love that yeah i'm impressed with you like remembering hearing some preaching at, as a kid that you enjoyed because all my memories pretty much of like sitting in church and listening to preaching as a kid or me being like bored out of my mind. And I say that we had this pastor when I was growing up who was um, like uh, he was Scottish and he was like known across town as being this just like tremendously interesting and eloquent preacher. Um, but I did not care. <laughs> I did not listen. I have no memories of those sermons. Because so you're a filthy sinner. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Maybe that's it. But, but yeah, so, there, 
there were some that definitely, you know, and a lot that were just boring and I would just sit there and stare yeah. at the floor, you know, and stand yeah. in eyes when everyone else stood in, in rows. But other than that, yeah. I would zone out. But, but it sounds like, it sounds like one of these guys, at least the guy that you said we're talking about from your confirmation, you had a relationship with him. Like he actually mentored you to some degree, which I think that probably, maybe that's the difference. I didn't know any of these pastors. I think if you know somebody and have a relationship with them, you're far more likely to hear out what they have to say. Yeah. But, yeah. uh, so is it like growing up, did you, 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 are you still uh, religious? No. Um, so basically in my early college years, uh, some, some of my summer jobs in high school and college were working at Bible camps and things like that. And then once I got to university, uh, I don't know if it was my second year or my third year, but, um, I basically had seen enough of what, how's the right way to word this? There, were, I'd seen enough different things that were in direct opposition to how I was raised mm. that made me really question what I was taught. And, mm. you know, I was exposed to other religions, to extremely good people who had no religion. Um, and so the idea that I needed religion to be a good person and to bring good things into the world was brought up into question. That um, my religion was right and other religions were wrong was really brought into question. Um, hmm. There was a lot of those things that came up. And so I don't know if I became agnostic or atheist, but I definitely fell out of the faith. And, uh, you know, and I remember telling my family about this and my mom was like, okay. And my grandma was like, okay. <laughs> and my sister was like, what? How can you just stop believing? What is wrong with you? How will you know what is right and wrong? And I'm like, you know, these like the Ten Commandments are a great way to live your life. Like in in general, you know, like the the guidelines are still really solid. I don't think that you need to to believe in um, a greater power to live a good life and bring good things into the world. And I think that my exposure to different beliefs and different religions and different ideals in university really opened me up to that. Where you know. I think if anybody looked at my life, they would say that I live a, a pretty quote unquote Christian life, but I'm, I'm not a Christian by any means. Um, but I live by a lot like those lessons that I learned growing up um, and maintained through my life about being a good person and helping people in need. And, you know, all those different values are still a very important part of who I am. And uh, I just stopped believing. Yeah. So where does your like moral sensibility then come from now? Like what drives you to try? Cause you talked about like, you feel like in a lot of ways you still live a Christian life in a sense, like living out some of the ethics and things like that. Um, so where does that like that centering come from for you now? I think it's, there's a lot in my life that is accepting that people are going to be different and they're going to want to do different things and believe in different things and that that's 110% okay, you know, and that was, that was probably for me, the biggest conflict was, how can I be friends with somebody who believes in a different existence of the world than how I believe mm -hmm. the world exists? And that just, it blew my mind when I was younger. Um, and so recognizing that people are going to be different, and those people are amazing, because they see the world in a different way. And that's really, that's been a big guiding factor for me. And, and the other thing is just, when I do something, I, I try to make every situation better you know, and just try and be the light that makes, you know, whether I'm at a party or working on a project or, you know, hanging out with my family or whatever, uh, just try to be somebody who makes a situation better in their, whatever mm -hmm. way possible. Um, but also yeah. always accepting that, that people are different. And I think it was just, you know, in my second year of university, I was really involved in the punk rock scene. Um, and so I was the, the straight edge kid in the punk rock scene in that year. And, uh, just seeing all these yeah. different people and different bands coming through the town. And, you know, sometimes you'd have straight edge bands and sometimes you have Christian bands. Sometimes you'd have like speed metal, you know, Satan bands. And <laughs> I was, I was friends with all of them. And a yeah. lot of times they crashed in our house because we were really involved in the scene. And it really opened up my eyes to just, there's so many different people out here that I was just closed off to because of my belief system. But hmm. if I can just accept that you're going to believe what you believe. And as long as what you believe doesn't, hurt other people that's okay and yeah that's was go ahead sorry go ahead. i was gonna say that's kind of what you're as you're talking made me think about like i wondered if you felt like the belief system that you had encouraged you to kind of close yourself off from certain people or to to write people off or or was that how you interpreted it 
Um, I think it was a bit of both. You know, it was it was mind opening to me coming from a small town uh, and go, and I didn't go to a big city. You know, I went to, to university in Saskatoon, population you know three hundred and fifty thousand people. It wasn't big by any means, but it was yeah. suddenly being exposed to you know international students from other parts of the world and stuff. But just even realizing that Christianity wasn't the biggest religion in the world and that everybody around me wasn't a Christian because that was that was the town I grew up mm. in. You know, yeah. Everybody right. went to a church. Like the traffic jam was Sunday morning. It wasn't going to work <laughs> at 9 a.m. It was Sunday between 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. That's when the roads were busy, you know, because yeah. um, everybody was religious and in, in different veins of Christianity, but still, you know, everyone was a Christian and there, there were no other religions. And so I just assumed the whole world was like that. So then seeing different religions and different beliefs and, you know, just the different approaches to it really opened my eyes um, yeah. to, to just kind of how I had been closed off. And so I mm-hmm. opened myself up in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious. Cause I think I've had maybe a similar experience, although I never exactly let go of, or, ne- or never did let go. <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> I haven't let go of my Christian faith. Um, but I definitely have had that experience of like coming out of a certain, um, I don't know, like, a certain version of the Christian faith, I guess, to some degree and, and sort of feeling like, okay, well, if, if you're, if you're a Christian, then that means you're pursuing God and um, you have this really strong moral compass. And so you should be like, Christians should be better people than everybody else in theory. Right. Like if you buy into that, Um, but then you meet people who are, um, who are Muslim or who are atheists or who um, aren't, don't, don't, you know, have any label and don't know what they are. And they're still like genuine, kind, loving people, you know, and that sort of messes with your theology. Uh, but for me, like it was this realization that the way it was kind of this realization that the way I'd been interpreting some things like about the gospel for lack of a better word were, were wrong, you know, as opposed to like letting go of it altogether. So I was just curious of your, of your, um, yeah, of your, of your story on that, because I think, yeah, like for, for me, I just realized, man, some of the uh, like if I if you really I'll put it this way, like if I think if you really believe the gospel for me, I realized that means that like uh, grace is to is offered to everybody like God, I think, uh, you know, has a has a love for everyone that gives them inherent value. And so we shouldn't be like so, so that sort of opened my eyes to like I shouldn't be surprised to find these other people who don't share my worldview, who are are kind, good, genuine loving people. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. I agree completely. Yeah. I think that's, you, that's, that's exactly what happened to me. Um, you know, some of my best friends early in college were, were gay and, uh, Mm -hmm. I had been taught that, you know, this is one way trip to hell. These are the worst people in the world. And I'm like, no, like these are my best friends of all time that Mm -hmm. in a way that nobody has else has ever seen me. So how can I believe that these people are doomed to, you know, you know, go down to hell and these are sinners and that they're just living the life that way that, that their life is, is spelled out for them. And really having, you know, university for me was a very mind opening experience in that I, I just had a lot of yeah. really open and honest discussions with people and really understanding how different things function. And, you know, maybe I was just lucky because I grew up in Saskatchewan and a lot of people aren't open in Saskatchewan, but I found the right circle of friends that I could really expand my understanding of different cultures and different Mm-hmm. You know, different ways of life that it really it, it it shook the foundation of my belief and then i realized that I, I just didn't need it anymore to to lead a happy life um and to lead a life that i could bring bring joy and, and cheer to other people as well yeah and you mentioned that like your sister um that bothered your sister a lot when you said that you uh you didn't believe in god or you weren't sure that you believed in god anymore uh what what's your relationship with her like with regard to these things now um, like it's, I still remember the first time that my, my daughter, she was self-aware, went to my sister's house for dinner and they all bowed their heads to say grace before dinner. And my daughter just looked around at like, what happened to everybody at the table? Cause everyone had their head bowed to pray. And, uh, cause you know, she's obviously raised in an atheist house, but, uh, my, my relationship is, is pretty good. You know, we've had a couple of other non-religious conflicts that have, uh, you know, put us in a position where, you know, I, I don't think we'll ever make full reparations, but, hmm. you know, there was, you know, she asked that, you know, as, as long as her kids were in the house that we didn't 
you know, acknowledge that we were atheists. And I said, you know, that's fair. You know, these are your kids and they're in your house um, and you're going to raise them as, as you see fit. My sister is still really involved in the church and it's a big part of her life. And, you know, sometimes she'll have a get together at her house and we'll be there and just about everyone else will be part of the church and the conversation will go in a certain direction and, uh, <laughs> awkward, you know, <laughs> it's created conflict and, you know, like there's, you know, I don't think my sister's part of that group, but there's some really mm. evangelical Christians who are anti-vaxxers that are part of her circle group. And that's, you know, it's a very specific. Anti-vaxxers, I guess, and anti-vaccines. Yeah, yeah. yeah anti-vaccine okay. people. And, you know, it's like, which is, you know, like if Vancouver, if you go to the east of Vancouver, it's an area called the Fraser Valley. And as you go farther into the Fraser Valley, there's Christianity. You get some pretty evangelical really hardcore um you know, beyond yeah. your, your typical christian churches where you know yeah anti-vaccines pretty hardcore I, yeah, yeah exactly so, <laughs> yeah um and so you get some of that conversation happening too and you know it's really hard to to mm. curb myself but i always try and approach it in a, a diplomatic way but in your yeah. tongue off the yeah. whole time yeah, it's like those awkward Thanksgiving conversations sometimes. Mm. But it sounds like your your mom was like pretty chill about it, which is interesting. But she's still religious, right? Yeah, like I think a part of her was religious for her kids' sake to like because she was a single mom and uh, she's was like, really- if I don't take them to church, they'll become alcoholics or something. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. And it didn't help either my sister or I to <laughs> along those lines. But um, <laughs> right. you know, it was. Uh, I think that it it gave her something to that was mm-hmm. regular in a life that yeah. was really regular irregular and hectic. Like once we we both moved out of the house, I don't think my mom went to church that much outside of Christmas and Easter and a couple times here or there. But you know, it was like we were, finally, yeah. Well, I don't, it's hard to say. I, I've never directly asked my mom about this, but you know, she she did finances for the church for a couple of years. You know, she's an accountant by trade. Um, now she's a massage therapist. But you know, it oh, was, that's a shift. I think, <laughs> Yeah, it's a big shift. As soon as we left the house, she like, all right, I don't have kids anymore. I can do what I want to do, um, you know, because she wasn't financially strapped. And so she went to massage therapy school and wow. it was like the light went off and she was incredibly happy. But she had hmm. she always needed a job and she knew she could do bookkeeping and that's what she did. Um, so I don't know. I've never had this conversation with my mom, but my mom probably until a couple of years ago, never really understood me in a, in a small town of people who want to be farmers um, and yeah, have yeah. safe jobs. I was the one who wanted to move to the big city and make cartoons and comic books. And, <laughs> you know, at 16 years old, when everyone else is playing football, I'm still sitting in my basement playing with my GI Joes and watching, you know, Transformers cartoons uh, when everyone else is outgrowing it. You know, my mom, I don't think she ever really got me. And so, she had my mom and my sister had a lot of issues when I was growing up and that made me become the good kid. Like I was never, you know, I, I maybe stayed out past my curfew twice and it was totally by accident, you know, where <laughs> yeah. my sister was, you know, she was the partier and she's the one that got into trouble. And I saw all that happen to my older sister and my mom. And I was like, I don't want to be that problem for my mom. So I'm going to be the good kid. Um, but she never understood me. You know, like I really got into BMX and extreme sports in high school and she mm-hmm. was just like, I don't get this. You know, like my sister was into figure skating. My mom understood that growing up in a, a, a snowy part of Canada, you understand skating. So she <laughs> yeah. can participate in that hobby where for me, she didn't understand anything I did. So she just kind of, I think she just agreed to accept it. You know, you know, people would be like, oh, your, your teenage son is still reading comic books. Comic books are for kids. And my mom would be like, hey, my kid's reading, you know, yeah. hey, yeah. it is is making noise all night on his bike and you know hanging out with skateboarders and she's like yeah he's not in the bush having parties and drinking and driving you know like she always stood up for what i did but i don't think she ever really understood Mm. it so yeah and at this time i'm in college and i've got painted fingernails and long purple hair and i'm i'm wearing dresses sometimes and i just came up and said mom i don't believe in jesus anymore and she's (laughs) like okay i still love you you know because that's all she knew and she knew that put a wall up then it might never come down again and so she's been always super accepting of the different lifestyle choices i've made and the different decisions i've made because you know she knew it made me happy and she didn't have to understand it to accept it and i think that that was a big part of that and you know same with my grandma my grandma you know as a sing my mom being a single mom my grandma played a huge role in raising me and she always raised me 
to be a dreamer and an idealist and to stand mm-hmm. up for what I believe in and be proud of who I was. And uh, those values really shaped where I went with life. And my mom didn't get it. And she just accepted it, which was great, you know, because a lot yeah, of times yeah. you don't understand your kid. And if you put up a wall because you don't understand, I think it can lead to a lot more conflict. There's something to be said for like not understanding, but accepting until you can understand it. Because you said, I'm curious to hear what the transition was, because you said up until a couple of years ago, you felt like she didn't really understand you. Was there something that changed? Well, I think we just spent more time together. Um, as my daughter, probably when she turned five years old, um, she really glommed onto my mom for some reason. And my mom, you know, she lives two provinces away. She might come out to Vancouver to visit twice a year, but they really started to form a bond. And so when my mom would come out to visit, we, my, my family's always lived in the city of Vancouver. So we've got, you know, small apartments and things like that. And my sister lives in the suburbs. So she's got a big house with a yard. So my mom comes to visit, she stays with my sister and she might come and visit me for a day and my family. Um, but as my, my mom and my daughter have gotten a better relationship, my mom's wanted to spend more time with us and, and rightly so. And so we've worked really hard to find ways to make that happen where it's like, mm-hmm. if my mom's out visiting, maybe we'll go stay at a resort where my mom can have a room with a bed and things like that. Or so we'll go stay at a hotel or we'll go on a trip. Um, you know, this, this, this summer in June, we did a road trip out to the prairies of Saskatchewan and I invited my mom to meet us in the middle. And so she spent the second half of the road trip with us uh, traveling and staying in hotels and everything. Um, just me being a little bit more inviting to my mom, I think has made her want to be a bigger part of, of my life. Cause I've never, I've never, really had a tight relationship with my mom. I was always my grandma's kid, you know, like mm-hmm. that was the person I had a tight relationship with. And then when my grandma passed, uh, there, I just never really connected with my mom in the same way that I had connected with my grandma. Um, mm-hmm. but over the last few years, because I want to make my mom happy and my daughter happy, I've resulted in having a better relationship with my mom, which has been great. Yeah. That's great, man. Yeah. Families can be, uh, can be tough, can be tricky, but, yeah. uh, Man, it's um, it's important to work at it. I think um, I was just telling, I was just talking to some friends recently about this. I'm just thankful, like with my parents, because like I think with my mom, probably there's some really important issues and things that we just don't see eye to eye on. Um, but one of the cool things about my mom is that she's never made me feel like small or 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 like unwelcome because I have those views. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like I think that's, I exactly what you mean. that's uh, like, I, as I grow older, I'm really appreciative of that about her. Like my mom has always made me feel accepted. Um, that's a pretty, that's like, a hard thing to do. Like that. Yeah. I, yeah, I really I respect so. people that can do that. Cause I mean, I try to do that, but I don't know that I hit the mark all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and it's, it's big, in big contrast to my father, who's always been trying to get me to change and trying to fit mm. his mold of what a person should be. And, you know, my, my dad is, is very, very conservative, um, in a lot of ways. And so we've, we've never seen eye to eye. My dad. And like religiously or politically or all of Most, the above? Mostly politically, but, you know, when, when his political views can be backed up with religion then he'll say it's a religious view <laughs> yeah. you know so he's like oh I, I don't like gay people because of the that's bible my favorite. Like, no you don't like gay people because you don't like gay people dad like yeah. <laughs> stop stop using the bible as an excuse yeah. and yeah. uh you know so it's it's that's been a conflict but in direct contrast to my relationship with my mom who's always you know i can't think of a time where outside of you know concern for my health um, she's told me not to do something, you know, she's just always mm-hmm. been very accepting and supporting, which has been great. Your mom sounds like a, like a sweet lady. She's a treasure. Yeah. That's cool. Well, thanks so much for sharing about your life and, yeah. uh, your, your game design and even a little bit about parenting and Fortnite. This has been fun. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah. Well, uh, where can people find you online, Shane? Um, so on most mediums, I'm at Shane Neville, S-H-A-N-E-N-E-V-I-L-L-E, uh, relatively active on Twitter, occasionally on Instagram, uh, and will be more active very soon on Tumblr. Uh, cool. and, uh, yeah, that's, that's where they can find me. Nice. And, uh, and you, you can't make an announcement about this new project, but people 
follow you on Twitter, we'll probably hear about that. Yeah, there should be probably like some concept art images coming up over the next month. And then once it starts to take form, I'll be a lot more active on social media, putting stuff out there. And uh, it it won't be a four year project. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Cool. We'll definitely be looking for that. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Drew Dixon 82. Chris has a Twitter and he hardly ever uses it. Um, Love Thy Nerd is on all the social medias. Just search for at Love Thy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, If there's a social media platform we're not on and you wish we were, just let us know. If you have questions about this podcast, you can email me, Drew at Love Thy Nerd or Chris at LoveThyNerd.com. We're happy to answer any of your questions. If you want to come on this podcast, you can do that. Just uh, give us some money. Um, no, I'm so, sort of kidding, but sort of not. But if you want to support Love Thy Nerd, please do. Um, and one of the benefits we give to people who support us is we let you come on this show with us and ask one of our really cool guests like Shane a question. Um, so consider doing that. Um, but also just we can't do this without the support of our listeners. Um, it's, yeah, we just, there's no way we can keep this going without some help. So um, yeah, think about it. Uh, you check out the great articles and uh, podcasts at lovethynerd.com. It's our website. Uh, we have a whole podcast network. We have a comic book co- podcast that's great called Pull List about what's good and beautiful and true in the world of comics. Um, we have a free. We have the Free Play podcast, which is kind of a general uh, interest nerddom podcast <laughs> with. With people who are far more funny than Chris and I, it's re- it's a really uh, it's a, it's a good bit more lighthearted than the, this show, which is probably needed because we get into some heavy stuff here sometimes. Um, so definitely go check that out. I lo- I personally love free play. I listen to it every week, um, and I know I'm the chief content nerd. I love that nerd, but I feel like I would listen to it even if I wasn't. So there you go. Uh, that's that's about it. Anything else, Chris, that I missed? Nope. Good job. Okay. Awesome. It. One day we'll like have a script and then it'll be uh, a lot smoother. Um, but maybe not. We may never do that. Shane, thanks again, man, for coming on. This was this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having thanks, me, Shane. Shane.